to the Every Word Podcast. All right. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, whatever time of the day it is. <laughs> uh, we are so thankful that you have decided to tune in once again to the Every Word Podcast. So thank you very much for your continued uh, listenership. We are continuing on with our uh, very long study of Genesis, and today we are in Genesis chapter 35. So uh, I guess we'll just go ahead and jump in. Um, We're reading from the New Living Translation, and we're going to be reading all the way up uh, from verse 1 to verse 15. So Genesis chapter 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Get ready and move to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob told everyone in his household, Get rid of all your pagan idols, purify yourselves, and put on clean clothing. We are now going to Bethel, where I will build an altar to the God who answered my prayers when I was in distress. He has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all their pagan idols and earrings, and he buried them under the great tree near Shechem. As they set out, a terror from God spread over the people in all the towns of that area, so no one attacked Jacob's family. Eventually, Jacob and his household arrived at Luz, also called Bethel, in Canaan. Jacob built an altar there and named the place El Bethel, which means God of Bethel. Because God had appeared to him there when he was fleeing from his brother Esau. Soon after this, Rebekah's old nurse Deborah died. She was buried beneath the oak tree in the valley below Bethel. Ever since, the tree has been called Alon Bakuth, which means Oak of Weeping. Now that Jacob had returned from Padanaram, God appeared to him at Bethel. God, uh, God blessed him, saying, Your name is Jacob, but you will not be called Jacob any longer. From now on, your name will be Israel. So God renamed him Israel. Then God said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. You will become a great nation, even many nations. Kings will be among your descendants. And I will give you the land I once gave to Abram and Isaac. Yes, I will give it to you and your descendants after you. Then God went up from the place where he had spoken to Jacob. Jacob set up a stone pillar to mark the place where God had spoken to him. Then he poured wine over it as an offering to God and anointed the pillar with olive oil. And Jacob named the place Bethel, which means house of God, because God had spoken to him there. All right, AJ, go ahead. What are your thoughts on this passage? All right. Well, thanks, Ethan, for the reading. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I will go ahead and get started. Um, the bulk of my notes on this chapter are in these first 15 verses, but I will try to be as concise as I can. But as we get into this chapter, uh, we see how God is now calling out to Jacob again, and he's telling him specifically where uh, he needs to go. So we see God being rather direct with Jacob and his family, but you could see this as a result of the tragedies that took place in Shechem that we read about in last chapter. And if you're not familiar with that, go back and check out our last uh, episode where we covered uh, Genesis 34. Uh, it was a really good one where we talked about the tragedy that happened in Shechem, and we kind of break that down. Um, but now we do see in verses 2 and 3 that Jacob 
that that Jacob. Uh, well, I can't even read my own notes. I'm sorry. Um, Jacob is giving these commandments uh, to his people, and it's very different from the Jacob that we've read so much about the the deceiver and the one that for so long would not recognize God uh, to be his God. So, in verse two, we see three very specific commandments or commands, if you will, from Jacob to his people get rid of their pagan idols, to purify themselves, and to put on clean clothing. So when I saw that, I thought, well, let me go ahead and I want to try to see if I can break this down and kind of of dig into this a little bit. Um, So the first one, the riddance of pagan idols. So some scholars think that the gods that Jacob is referring to are not, in fact, the household gods that Rachel took from her father's house, but rather these idols were likely spoils of war from the demise of Shechem that we read about in the last chapter. As we know, Jacob's uh, children, they plundered the city. So, however, there is no concrete evidence, though, that these are only the idols that Jacob demanded to be gone. Um, And as we see this chapter kind of as a fulfillment, there's a lot of of agreeance that this chapter contains a lot of fulfillment of Jacob's vow with God in chapter 28, where he basically said, if you'll bring me back to my father's land, you'll take care of me, then I, you know, you will be my God. Um, so that we know that this vow included Jacob making Yahweh his God. And to do that, he would he could likely have been demanding the riddance of both the idols from Shechem, as well as potentially idols that had remained uh, with Rachel that she took uh, from her father's house. So me personally, and again, this is kind of open-ended, so it's up for your own interpretation. I like to think that uh, this was Jacob's true intention was to not only get rid of maybe any idols that may have been picked up in the land of Shechem, but maybe even getting rid of those pagan idols or those household idols um, that had been uh, in their camp, so to speak, ever since uh, Laban, excuse me, uh, Rachel and Leah hadn't left their father's house and they were becoming sold out to God. So um, the next one's purifying yourself and putting on clean clothing. So purification and cleansing, those are topics that we see in a lot of places throughout the Bible. But in the Old Testament, purification and cleansing, they were both a more of a physical act. But we do see in the New Testament that our cleansing uh, is now done through the blood of Jesus. And it is because of his blood that we can be washed whiter than snow. First John uh, chapter one, verse seven tells us that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And we also see in Ephesians chapter four, verses 20 through 22 through 24, that we are to throw off our old sinful nature and be robed in spiritual newness by God. So we see both these actions Jacob calls for uh, the purification and putting on clean clothing are could be seen as foreshadowing to elements of salvation and redemption that we'll see throughout the remainder of the Bible. And in this particular case, it's likely that uh, Jacob's children's clothes and bodies were still literally soiled uh, from the blood of their enemies as they went through and basically slew this entire town. Um, and the stains of their sins were, were basically being shown upon them, both in their robes and on their flesh. So Jacob is calling for all that to be torn away and for, for themselves to be cleansed so that his family can now walk in a new purified life with God that is separate and is no longer connected to the tragedy there at Shechem. Um, Now, notice in verse 4 that not only were the pagan idol surrenders, but so too were the earrings. And this is something that, you know, it could be easily looked over, you know, okay, they turned in their idols and earrings, whatever. But on the surface, the earrings probably don't seem like that much of a distraction, but in this day, earrings were often made to reflect or honor pagan idols. They were almost like 
uh, idol accessories, if you will. Um, so it's like if you had this idol, um, you could have potentially had earrings that kind of uh, were like a symbol uh, that reflected that said idol kind of an accompaniment if you will so though the though these themselves these earrings weren't idols they gave glory and potentially an honor and homage to these false gods and i think it's very important here that they gave up these earrings because just like us we are guilty sometimes of retaining things that we think aren't maybe technically sinful but maybe they're giving glory and honor to things that aren't of god yeah they may be small and insignificant in appearance maybe like an earring but if they are a constant reminder of our past or they're trying to distract us from the from our walk with god and the the will that god wants to to do within our lives we need to get rid of those as well um even though like i said they may seem small get rid of them because they will uh, you know those small seeds of temptation and reminders of the past can still undermine what god has for you and his in your future um, and I also find it interesting, these items, they weren't just left behind, they were buried. And Jacob, he didn't leave these things out in the open for someone else to come along and pick up and, and all of a sudden start worshiping them. His intent was that these things would be disposed of in a way that they would never see the light of day again, so thus they were buried. And again, this mirrors the process of baptism in our Acts 2.38 plan of salvation that we all know and love. Because when we're baptized, we are burying those things which are not of God. And when we rise from the water, all those things... All that remains is a cleansed soul that is no longer tied to the things of the past. They have been buried. Um, and notice that where the idols were buried, they were buried in the land of Shechem. So Shechem was their past, and thus Jacob left their idols in the past. He did not wait until he got into the promised land, so to speak, or into the land that God had called him to be in to then bury the idols. He left them behind in the land that he knew um, that that was not of God, and he left them behind in a place where he would never trot again. So uh, I love what verse 5 says. So uh, in verse 5 says, you know, as they set out, a terror from God spread over the people in all the towns in the area, so no one attacked Jacob's family. So when Jacob finally decided to devote himself and his family over to God and to leave behind these idols and to cleanse themselves, God came on the scene in an extremely powerful way and provided this umbrella of protection over Jacob and his family. You know, we're talking about the same Jacob that you know, when he left his father all those years ago, he was fleeing for his life. He was afraid that, you know, his brother was going to come and kill him. And then when he runs into his brother later, um, you know, he sees the hundreds of, of men marching towards him. He's still afraid that um, he's going to be destroyed. But now because he has surrendered to God and he's, he's turned his family over to Yahweh, now God is basically, you know, going out before him, putting this terror into those people so that they, that his people would be protected, that Jesus Jacob and, and the future of Israel would be protected. And that's how God still is to this day. If we dedicate ourselves to him and we rid ourselves of ungodly influences and we die out to sin daily, he will protect us and he'll keep, he will continue to keep us. So I want to skip down to verses nine through 10. And in those verses, we see that God visits with Jacob again. And we see God make a change to Jacob's name in which he's now called to be Israel. But, you know, 
Isn't this just an echo of the events from back in Genesis chapter 32 when Jacob wrestled with God all night? If you go back and read in that chapter, God said the same thing. He basically told him, hey, your name's not Jacob anymore. It's Israel. So, yes, it is. It is essentially an echo. But remember the events of the last chapter. Jacob hadn't exactly, and his family, hadn't exactly been acting like God had intended for him to act. But when we see Jacob finally come into the land and into the will of God, God is quick to remind Jacob that the anointing that God bestowed upon point in that night in the blessing, it's still there. And it's a good reminder for all of us because maybe God's promised you something or uh, maybe there's a call in your life, but maybe through some poor choices on our own or because we've uh, stumbled as we do because we're all human, uh, we've fallen short of the blessings and the will of God uh, in our lives. God wants, wanted to remind Jacob and he also wants to remind us that if we do as Jacob did and we rid ourselves of these idols and impurities and return to the land of God, return into his will, those same promises and blessings that he promised back then, they will still hold true in our lives because our God, he's a God of redemption. He's a God of forgiveness. He still wants you to be great in his kingdom, regardless of your mistakes. Just come back into the promised land and he will bless you and he will continue to visit and he will visit you again. So um, going down to verses 11 through 12, those will great those greatly mirror what God promised Jacob the night of his dream in uh, Genesis 28 when Jacob was last at Bethel. Again, this is further confirmation by God that Jacob, who we now consider to be Israel, is in the will of God, both where he is physically and spiritually. So 11 and 12, if, if you don't remember, that's where God is saying, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. And he's basically promising this covenant uh, that he promised to Abraham. He's, he's promising it uh, to the seed of Jacob. So God is recalling these things to reassure Israel that he is for them and that he his promises are still valid regardless of his past mistakes. So I did notice here that, you know, we see God referring to himself as El Shaddai. And this is a name that we haven't seen unless I missed it. I tried to do my research and I may have missed it somewhere between uh, the the reference I'm about to make and now maybe there was another time in between but um, to my best research uh, we have not seen El Shaddai being used since Genesis chapter 17 when he was speaking to Jacob's grandfather Abraham and who at that point God was then reaffirming his co his covenant with Abraham so you know, potentially, if you want to look at it a certain way, you could interpret this as another way for God to remind Jacob that he's the same God that watched over and multiplied the efforts of Abraham and that he, El Shaddai, the great God of Abraham, was now also the God of Jacob and the God of Israel. So um, going down to verse 14, uh, we see verse 14 is where Jacob sets up a stone pillar to mark <clears throat> where God, the place where God had spoken to him. And uh, we see that Jacob pours out wine over the stone pillar where he places the mark, uh, to where he places the mark where God speaks to him. So in my research, you know, I found that kind of interesting that he chose to pour wine over it. So pouring out wine on an altar is seen a few times, a few more times in the Bible. Um, the, the references that I saw were mainly in the Pentateuch. So the first five books of the Bible, 
Um, but in Paul's writings, in both Philippians 2, 17 and 2 Timothy 4 and 6, he refers to himself pouring out his life to God akin to pouring out a liquid offering upon an altar. So therefore, you could interpret this uh, to say, or you can interpret Jacob's actions here as a symbol of him pouring out his life in sacrifice to God at this altar. So again, it's another demonstration by Jacob to basically say, you know what, I'm in this now. I'm in this for the long hall i'm pouring out my life on the altar of god you know i'm i'm giving myself over to yahweh so uh with that being said that's all the notes that i have on this first section of scripture so i will turn it over to you brother ethan what are your thoughts all right thanks aj uh hey nice work and uh nice work there also pointing out um the first drink or liquid offering that's uh, mentioned in the Bible. I actually did not pick that up. So um, really cool there to see that being the, being the first of, of many drink offerings uh, referenced in uh, the Bible. So really cool there. All right. Uh, so I'm going to jump into my notes here. Um, so Jacob finally makes a full circle and returns to Bethel and I guess just for context, remember Bethel is the place where Jacob uh, goes to sleep. He puts a stone uh, underneath his head as a pillow, and he sees the vision of the staircase or the ladder reaching to heaven, the angels going up and down uh, that ladder, and then he sees uh, he sees God. And from that experience, Jacob names that place Bethel which means house of God. And so this return to Bethel was a return that was prompted by God. And so God tells Jacob to return there and make his home there as, so the NLT says it like this. It says, settle there and build an altar there to the God who appeared to you, appeared to you, settle there and build an altar. So really interesting words there. I was reading this and and a thought came to me, you know, sometimes we need a divine prompt for, to come into our lives. Sometimes we need God to prompt us to return and remember something that he did for us long ago. This is many, many years later. And Jacob has fled. He, he, he fled from his fled for his life from his brother Esau many years before. And at that time he was terrified of his fate, his future. It was very uncertain. And now he had settled near Shechem. He's witnessed the evil of the Canaanite people and the evil done to his own family. And you got to think, okay, you know, that was a pretty rough experience for him. And, and, and in that moment, he really needed a reminder from God and he needed a reminder of, of his faithfulness and his goodness in tough situations. And that reminder came uh, into fruition or came into being through the, that return to Bethel and allowing Jacob to remember how God had kept him. I love how God tells Jacob to go and settle at Bethel. So I mentioned, but if you don't remember, Bethel means the house of God. And I'm reminded of a psalm, uh, a psalm, and I'm just going to read a couple of verses. It's from Psalm chapter 27, verses 4 and 5. A pretty famous passage of scripture, but I'm going to read it because it fits really well. It says this, One thing I have asked of the Lord, this is what I desire, 
to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high upon a rock. You know, when we dwell in God's presence, we're going to find that shelter and that strength that we need, just like Jacob found that shelter and that strength he needed many years ago. I also love how God commands Jacob to build an altar at this future home. You know, many homes are not blessed by God because an altar is absent from the home. Us in America, we, we love to have the nice home. We love to have the the, the lovely family, right? The um, the classic family with a husband and wife and two or three kids. And, you know, we like having nice things. But all this ideality is for naught if an altar is absent. An altar, like you've said, was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of surrender to God. But it was also a place of blessing where God would answer sacrifice with his acceptance and his consequential blessings. So if our homes lack an altar, we also may be lacking blessings from above. And I'm going to go as far to say if if we're going to build strong families that are protected from the evils of Shechem and the evils of the Canaanites, we need to make sure that a priority is to build altars within our homes, to not forsake the altar, not to forsake the family altar, but to pray together as a family, to pray over our families and pray over our homes. Notice that when Jacob and his family ditched their idols and their jewelry, the Canaanite people became afraid to attack them. And I'm sure that uh, this story has probably been used in a Pentecostal service, uh, in a Pentecostal sermon to, to preach against uh preach against jewelry. I, I, I'm, I'm, I've never heard it, but I'm sure it has in the past, but I, and I'm not, I'm not here to say like, Hey, you know, let's, let's not talk about, uh, external holiness or holiness standards, but holiness is so much more than just an outward appearance. And, um, you know, we often get hung up on the outward appearance, especially us Pentecostals, but holiness is so much more than that. It's also a separation that occurs on the inside. And you did a really good job of pointing this out, AJ, but idols had to be thrown away for God's blessing of divine protection to come upon Jacob. They had to make sure that they only served one God in their lives. I personally am much more fearful of, of this lack of holiness, the, the, the lack of holiness on the inside than, than the lack of holiness on the outside. God's first commandment wasn't to look separate, not to wear jewelry, not to, you know, uh, not to wear shorts, you know, all, all these different things, but to have our hearts separated and dedicated to God alone. That first commandment being, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, that he is God alone. And so, are there idols in your life that you're still clinging to? I think it's a really valid question. 
If you can't seem to keep Shechem from attacking your family, perhaps you are still holding on to some idols in your life. I think it's time to throw those things away so that you can dwell in Bethel in the house of the Lord and find that divine protection and blessing he offers to all those who forsake everything else for him. Verse 9 begins with, now that Jacob had returned from Padam Aram. And so in God's eyes, when Jacob finally made it to Bethel, this was Jacob's final return from Padan Aram. That's, that's the town where his uncle Laban lived, and that's where Jacob had spent all those years serving his uncle. Now that he has made it back to the house of God, in God's eyes, Jacob has finally returned from that place. And so when Jacob finally gets back to Bethel, God appears to him again. We know that God had appeared to him many years before at Bethel. We talked about that. Um, and then God also appeared to, to Jacob before he met up with Esau. That's when he met uh, God and, and wrestled with him, right? But once more, God appears to Jacob in the place he appeared the first time. And God gives the blessing that he gave Jacob during his second appearance that Jacob would be called Israel. And like you said, God also reveals himself to Jacob as El Shaddai. As God revealed himself as El Shaddai to Abraham and Isaac before, God reveals himself as El Shaddai to Jacob. And I think that just ties in to this conclusion. Jacob has finally returned from Badan Aram. God has fulfilled his oath. Uh, Jacob has fulfilled his oath. And now God says, all right, Jacob, You've made it back. You've made it to the house of God. Let me reveal myself to you. I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty, and nothing is too hard for me. So that's it. Uh, I'll hand it back over to you. All right. Well, great thoughts, Brother Ethan, as always. I've greatly enjoyed it. Um, enjoyed all of it, naturally, but I really enjoyed the part where you talked about the importance of an altar, especially in the home. I, I think I'm right there with you. Um, I think every house needs an altar, regardless if you are living by yourself. Um, you know, you need your altar. You need your altar there to uh, to have your space to, to find God, like you said, uh, and to receive his blessings. But, you know, I think it, it even becomes more critical, like you said, the, as your family begins to expand, as you become married and potentially have children, you know, the altar should be a place that everybody in the house knows and a, a, a place that everybody can come to, you know, even like you said, in times to, of togetherness and pray together as a family so that you could receive those blessings um, together as a family. Like you said, I, I think that's, that's wonderful. And it's something that we are lacking. Um, I think a lot of times in, as the modern day church, sadly, that is something I think that gets overlooked. So I certainly agree with you that we need to be, we need to be on that, uh, more and we need to be emphasizing that more than we do today. So, um, Again, great thoughts. So I am going to go ahead and take us into the back half of the chapter, so the final reading for this episode. Um, and I will be picking up in verse 16 and reading down through verse 29. So reading in verse 16, verse 16 says, Leaving Bethel, Jacob and his clan moved on toward Ephrath. But Rachel went into labor while they were still some distance away. 
Her labor pains were intense. After a very hard delivery, the midwife finally exclaimed, Don't be afraid. You have another son. Rachel was about to die, but with her last breath, she named the baby Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. The baby's father, however, called him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a stone monument over Rachel's grave, and it, it can be seen there to this day. Then Jacob traveled on and camped beyond Migdal Edir. While he was living there, Reuben had intercourse with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Jacob soon heard about it. These are the names of the twelve sons of Jacob. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, were Gad and Asher. These are the names of the sons who were born to Jacob in Padan Aram. So Jacob returned to his father, Isaac, in Mamre, where, which is now Kiriath Arba, now called Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had both lived as foreigners. Isaac lived for 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died at a ripe old age, joining his ancestors in death, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. All right, Brother Ethan, turning it right back over to you. All right. Thanks, AJ. So this passage begins with Rachel and Rachel is pregnant with another son. And as she is giving birth, she names the boy Ben Oni, which means son of my sorrow. And so Rachel dies much younger uh, than the other wives in childbirth. And now Jacob is left with just a memory of his dearest wife. Uh, as we know, Rachel was very, very special to Jacob. And Rachel is no doubt in sorrow, for she knows as she is dying that she will not be able to see her two sons grow. But Jacob doesn't allow himself to wallow in sorrow. And instead, he honors his beautiful wife by renaming Benoni Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. In other words, Benjamin is the son of the woman who was at Jacob's right hand, in closest relationship with him, and at the highest position of honor. And so, from this, we know that Jacob very truly loved his wife, Rachel, and her two sons, Benjamin and Joseph, became very, very special to his heart. And so Rachel is buried in a place called Ephrath, which is more commonly known as Bethlehem. Yep. So that's the same Bethlehem where another son would be born, uh, a little boy named Jesus, <laughs> who would come and save us all from our sins, kind of an important person. And so Jesus wouldn't be the son of someone's right hand, but he would come to be the one who uh, would sit down at the right hand of God, and, and as at least figuratively. Of course, we know that Jesus is God, and so sitting at the right hand of God is a figure of speech. But I just wanted to point that out, that it seems interesting that 
you have a, a son of a right hand and then you have a son who sits down at the right hand of power. And so Jesus, who appeared to be just a man to mortal eyes, demonstrated that he was so much more than that through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. And because he has ascended to that figurative right hand of power, he has earned honor and authority, just like Jacob gave honor to Rachel. And Jesus ended up earning the name that's above every name. He earned the name of God. That was his name all along, but he was able to earn that name and have it in a way bestowed upon him before all the world. And and, and through the demonstration that he was himself God incarnate. So I just wanted to tie that to those two things together. So continuing on, Reuben, uh, Jacob's firstborn, There's this kind of terrible episode, but he sleeps with Jacob's concubine. And um, really, even though um, a concubine wasn't quite up to a, um, you know, a Rachel or a Leah status, a concubine was still a wife. And of course, this is a big no-no and something with which God is very displeased. And so, although concubines were lesser wives, they were still wives. And so, Reuben foolishly and rashly sins against his own father and sleeps with Bilhah. And uh, this act did not end without some consequences. And as a result of his sin, Reuben forfeits his birthright to Judah. Remember, he is the firstborn. So, like Jacob's brother Esau, Reuben exchanges his God-given promise for just a few moments of pleasure. Just think about that. That is just like the story of Esau. And I wonder how different the story would have been had Reuben acted wisely, if he had restrained himself and kept himself from sinning. Who knows? Maybe, perhaps, the Messiah would have come through his line instead of his brother Judah. Who knows? So uh, Jacob finally returns to Hebron where his father Isaac lived. And he ends up living a long time. 180 years is what the Bible tells us. That's a long time. And Isaac gets to see his son Jacob again along with his wives and his 12 sons. And you got to think how joyful, how precious that must have been for Isaac to see so much of his family, his sons, his daughters-in-law, and all his grandchildren. Uh, You know, one thing I did realize, I just want to point out, you know, as I'm coming to a close, I realized that in reading these last few verses that Isaac never actually got to meet Jacob's wife, Rachel. And, uh, and it seems strange. She's, she's such an important person to Jacob. And I think that only plays into how precious Rachel was to Jacob. Uh, just somebody who, who is just so close to him and not, and she doesn't even get to meet his father and how, bittersweet and um, 
and how sad it must have been for, for Jacob to know that uh, Isaac never got to meet uh, his precious wife, Rachel. So Isaac dies full of years, surrounded by his long-lost family, including his two sons, Jacob and Esau. Yes, Esau was there too. The two who had brought strife and division to his family, though they had started out that way, now they are reconciled, they are together, and they're there surrounding Isaac. And, and what a full circle for Isaac, who was able to die in peace, knowing that his family had been reconciled. So that's all I have. All right. Well, thanks again for the uh, for the thoughts there, Brother Ethan. You did a fantastic job, as always. Um, I did not think about that. You brought up there at the very end about Rachel never getting to meet uh, Jacob's father, Isaac. Um, very intriguing there. Very interesting. But, yeah, it's, uh, it, it is a shame, uh, really, when you think about it. But like you said there on the end, at least... Jacob was able to go back and reunite with his father finally in the end. So um, great thoughts. Great job as always. My notes are fairly similar to yours, so I will try to be as concise um, as I can be. So just like what you were talking about, you know, in the first few verses of the last half of this chapter, we see that Rachel's going into labor, the birth of her second and her final child. Um, you know, her midwife tries to do a little bit of cons consolation with her, telling her that, hey, it's it's a boy. It's great, um, but it's just not enough. And Rachel's final words proclaim him to be Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. But thankfully, Jacob doesn't let this stick and he understands Rachel's. But he, even though he understands Rachel's pain and sorrow, he refuses to let the, the final child of his true lover uh, bear a name that would forever recall the pain of her dying moment. So I think you kind of hit on this a little bit. I think there is a connection there that that Jacob you know, chooses to call Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin, you know, which means son of my right hand, um, because, you know, Rachel was always kind of his right hand uh, lady, if you would, if you will, you know, it was the one he always pined after. So um, he kind of, I think he took that opportunity to not only, you know, name this child almost in honor of the position that Rachel had uh, with, with Jacob, but also um, what a status upgrade it would be for Benjamin to go from son of my sorrow to, you know, uh, son of my right hand. You know, back in this day, names like this would mean a whole lot more uh, than kind of the name definitions do today. You know, we all kind of Google our names and are like, oh, yeah, my name means strength or my name means this or whatever. Um, but we don't, you know, I don't judge somebody based on that. You know, if I meet a guy named Judas, um, well, first of all, it'd be kind of strange. Not many Judases out there, but I'm not going to automatically judge him and say, oh, you must be a traitor, right? Um but back in this day, that was a little bit could be interpreted more in that direction. But um, so Jacob uses this opportunity to kind of bolster Benjamin up. Like you said, he does hold a very special place in Jacob's heart. Um, but now in verses 21 through 22, like you hit on, uh, we see Reuben. He, he commits an extremely egregious sin. He sleeps with his father's concubine, which with the culture of the day was essentially the same as sleeping with his father's wife. So. You know, the Bible does not really show us the full repercussions of this action, at least in in this little particular set of scripture. But um, other than the fact that we we know Jacob soon heard about it, that's all that was that's all that was really said about it here. But you you hit the nail on the head uh, with the commentaries and things that I read. Um, and I didn't really even think about this, but it's so true um, that because Reuben 
did this, you know, it kind of boots him out of line, so to speak, for uh, the Messiah to come through him. And so when you when you talk about back in the day, you know, the the order of being born mattered. Obviously, that's kind of whole the how the whole story with uh, Jacob and Esau started. You know, Esau came out first, so Esau got the blessings and all this, that, and the other. You know, everything defaulted to Esau, and Jacob didn't like that. Well. Um, still pretty similar culture during this time. Well, Jacob's got all these sons. Well, Reuben's the oldest, so you know all the blessings and everything should go to him. But now he's messed it up because he's slept with his father's concubine. Then the next in line is Simeon and Levi. Well, we know what they did. They were kind of the cohorts or conspirators behind the tra- tragedy at Shechem. So they've kind of ruined themselves. So guess who is number four in line? And that would be good old Judah. So, you know, while they may, while Reuben, Simeon, Levi, maybe they were oldest by tradition and by culture, um, and they would have been in line uh, for these spiritual blessings before Judah, but um, their, their rights, I guess, are, are kind of their, I would assume their, their right to bear the Messiah was forfeited, and it left Judah the honor of bringing forward uh, the coming Savior. And, you know, this, this kind of reminds us of two things that, one is that, you know, even though you may not pay for your sins in the moment, you will one day, um, be it in this world, um, maybe be it 30 years down the road, or hopefully not. But if we don't reconcile our sins and seek repentance for them, we will pay for them on the other side. Um, and the other is that just because you're not the oldest, just because you're not the strongest, and just because maybe, you know, life traditionally says that you're not supposed to be the one that's blessed. God can still elevate you if you hold fast to him, just like he did with Judah. Um, you know, like I said, Judah wasn't really in line for anything because the people in front of him messed up, it, you know, and he and that person uh, held true to God. Then now he gets this honor um, bestowed upon him all these generations later. So, um, you know, and the other thing about the Reuben sin is I, I think based on the way it was it was written here, you could infer that. Reuben intended for this to be kind of a secret sin. He he intended for this to be something that happened, but he didn't want anybody to find out. Um, but it's a great example of sins that are done in secret and how God will always know about them. Uh, you know, just because you maybe aren't caught red-handed uh, when you commit a sin doesn't mean the Father doesn't hear about it. Doesn't mean just like Jacob heard about it, God's going to hear about it. Because guess what? He knows the very intent of our heart at all times. So I shouldn't kid myself in thinking that any sin done outside of the public eye is not held accountable to me Uh, because there's always, you know, he's always there. He always sees us and he always knows all. So I can't kid myself in thinking that I could commit something, especially something so egregious and think that, you know, the, the God of the universe would not see me. So. Um, we must be accountable at all times, no matter the time of day, no matter where we're at, we must always be accountable. Um, and finally, and the last of my notes here, as we close this chapter, like you said, we saw, uh, we see that Jacob, he's finally reunited with his father. Um, some estimate that this has been over 20 years now since Jacob last saw his father as he was fleeing for his life after deceiving him. But God blessed Jacob by allowing him to reunite with Isaac, and he blessed Isaac by allowing him to see his son again before his death. And like you said, how beautiful of a moment it was at the passing of Isaac that his two, that the two brothers, his two sons, that once despised each other, that kind of created this this huge saga and arc for Jacob, would reunite uh, one final time to bury their father. 
And, you know, one has to think that Isaac died, like you said, in peace, knowing that his family was now reconciled and that there was no more strife. So, um, you know, with that being said, we kind of we kind of bring bring that this chapter to a close. And uh, I will go ahead and turn it back over to you, Brother Ethan. All right. Th- thanks, uh, AJ. Great thoughts. And uh, hey, nice job pointing out to uh, Reuben, Simeon and Levi all forfeiting, I guess, their rights, right, uh, as the firstborn. And uh, just something that struck me when you pointed that out, because I I honestly had not uh, picked up on that. But uh, how quickly, (laughs) how quickly that all happened. It took two chapters, right? right? (laughs) It was Simeon and Levi last chapter and uh, Reuben this chapter. How quickly. Mm -hmm. So, wow. Uh, So really, really great points there. So with that, I guess we are done with Genesis chapter 35. Woohoo. Uh, right. Getting closer and closer to the end. Well, uh, thank you everybody for tuning in once again this week. We hope uh, that this week will be a great week for you, that God's blessings will follow you. Hey, make sure you're building that altar within your home, that God's protection, his blessings will be upon you. We're praying for you. Uh, let's remember to pray for our world and uh, the crisis over there in uh, Ukraine. Uh, make sure that we're praying, we're lifting up our world before uh, the altar of heaven. So with that being said, uh, I guess we will uh, see you guys, talk to you all next week. Thank you very much. All right. See you guys. See you guys.